Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here with Tim Jackson. He's the author of two books, uh, Prosperity Without Growth and Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism, which is the one I just finished reading this morning. He's also uh, the, the lead of a research center at the University of Surrey in the UK, the Center for Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity. Tim, welcome to the show. This is a pleasure to be here, Richard. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Um, so I have to say, when I, you know, my, my visceral reaction to that title, post-growth, as, as somebody who's actively engaged in capitalism and entrepreneurialism, it, you know, it, it's sort of quite unsettling, this thought that, oh, you know, but growing companies, you know, that's part of what makes our societies dynamic and, and, and creative. And uh, the idea that we should just stop that sort of fills me with fear and sort of visions of a, of a socialist dystopia. Um, and yet, you know, I read this book and so much of it makes sense and sort of speaks to my heart. Um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting for people. I wonder if, if we should start with like just laying out what we mean by post growth, especially for those who it might, uh, uh, strike, strike some fear into. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, it is referring, um, you know, very specifically to the kind of model of economic growth. And, um, and, and you mentioned Prosperity Without Growth, which was a book that I wrote, uh, when I was economics commissioner for the UK Sustainable Development Commission. So it's a report to government, actually, <laughs> at the time. Um, and it was very uncomfortable for them, as you can, as you can imagine, to have an advisory body sort of turning around and saying, hang on, guys, you should question economic growth. When, of course, you know that expansion of the economy, the, the the indicator of the gross domestic product, the GDP, is in at the forefront of every politician's mind. At one point, actually, it was after the book was published, but when Cameron was prime minister, he he said, "I'm going to put every department in my government on a on a war footing in pursuit of growth." You know, that this is this is this is all we do. This is all that government does. So it is. It comes as a bit of a shock to the system, and and there are several reasons really for thinking for thinking about things differently thinking about post growth first the most obvious is that if you keep expanding your planet you're you're <laughs> sorry you can't expand your planet if you keep expanding <laughs> your economy indefinitely you know and your and your planet is defiantly not expanding to meet that then you know expanding economy meets finite planet and you kind of see what we're seeing at the moment climate change loss of biodiversity plastics in the ocean every single part of the planet somehow attacked by the detritus of human activity and that you know that's that's a, that's something we haven't come to terms with properly and that was really the basis of of my analysis in prosperity without grace and thinking about how far you could use technology to get around that how far you could use efficiency to get around it whether capitalism set up well to get around it and so on and so forth that book was written around about the time of the financial crisis 12 years ago now 13 years ago almost and 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 it and it was at, at its time, as I say, it was shocking. But since then, actually, the conversations moved quite a long way and in quite interesting ways. And one of the interesting things that's happened is that we've begun to realise that in the advanced economies, economic growth has actually been slowing down for several decades. And and yeah. and you know, within a few decades, we we could well be in a post-growth economy. And yet we don't have an economics to think about that. We don't have a politics to think about that. We don't have a, a sense of, of progress that includes that idea. So that was, that was a part of my reason, really, for, for writing Postgrowth, following up on the 10 years since that original analysis and, and kind of thinking, actually, you know, there's a lot of tough thinking to be going on. This is not a technical issue just. It's not just an economic issue. It's not just about policy 
proposals. It's a whole new mindset, as you were kind of suggesting. It's a, it's a challenge to our assumptions about what companies are, what societies are, and what we are as people. And that was the that was the, the challenge that I wanted to address in the book. Yeah, and I think you've said something there. You've you've drawn a distinction between growth and progress, and and I think that's an important one, right? And we get you get into that in the book and specifically this distinction between work and labor and i see that as a parallel right just we might we might labor and that might contribute to a growth in gdp but that's very different to work and potentially you know the growth and progress of our own development as humans i wonder if we sort of start start there as a as a way to juxtapose it a progress and a growth yeah that is an interesting comparison actually to, to that that because I see that comparison between work and labor slightly differently, but I do think okay. it has it has a sort of parallel you're right but let's let's address that question of you know distinguishing growth and progress first because I think it's really important and actually when when I was writing Prosperity without Growth back in the day, that was my starting point is when you look at the meaning of the word prosperity, even its origins in terms of language, it means pro speres in pursuit of or in accordance with our hopes. So prosperity is about having a good life that's in accordance with our hopes and aspirations. It's not about growth and accumulation for its own sake. And the word has only recently been sort of annexed by our society to kind of mean prosperity equals economic growth. It's, you know, historically that just wasn't the case. And in the roots of the word, it shows it isn't either. So that idea of thinking, you know, pulling those things apart is very, is very important. But let's come, let's talk about this distinction between work and, and labor, because I think it's a fascinating one. I don't know. I'd have to think about it more carefully, I think, to see whether it maps onto that distinction between growth and prosperity. Because for Hannah Arendt, who is the philosopher that, whose work I was drawing on in that chapter, the distinction between labor and work is that, is that labor is that sort of, you know, intense, visceral stuff that we have to do to get by, to feed ourselves, to clean ourselves, to to look after our kids, to look after our elderly people, the work of care for each other, and indeed, to some extent, care for the planet itself, potentially. And, and, it's, and it has this kind of, for, for Aaron, it has this sort of visceral quality to it. You know, you work, you labor, and, you, and it's the sweat of your brow that brings you the temporary achievements that allows you to temporarily satisfy your appetite for food or nutrition or shelter or something and you know that you're going to have to start again tomorrow because that never ever stops so it has this sort of sense of a continual natural process that all animals all species have to labor to get the energy they require to live and then to you know to get through the next day and then when your labor is over you have this period of rest and rejuvenation before it all begins again and and what Aaron says about that, which I think is really fascinating, is that, you know, perhaps that's our only true happiness lies in that regenerative act of laboring to care for ourselves and the recovery from it and being totally immersed in that process. Now, having made that, having made that definition of labor and, and, and what we as humans do in the processes of labor, she then says, You know, what we've done partly through technology, partly through progress, we have given ourselves a space to rise above that visceral process of exhaustion and regeneration that labor is about. We've given because partly because we become more productive at making food. We don't have to work so long to get it. 
So we've got all this time on our hands. And what happens? We, we lift our eyes from that exhaustive process. And what do we see? We see our own mortality. We see the temporariness of our existence. We see the fact that we're going to die. We see the fact that the civilization is only a temporary thing. And we want to resist that. And so what we try to do to resist that is to create a kind of a human world, of, of the world, the artifice of a human world that goes beyond that temporary regenerative process of labor, which ultimately ends in death. And we <laughs> try to create permanence so that work, in a sense, is this process of trying to, trying to find a strategy to deal with our own mortality. So we create things, we build things, we hope that they're durable, that they'll last longer than us. And, and you know, even if they don't, at least they, they go beyond that sort of very visceral regenerative process of the everyday toil and into a space which allows us to create extraordinary visions of human progress in a way. Right. So, so, so I'd sort of agree that it, you know, it does map onto that sense of what progress is. And, and in a sense, work is essential for us to be able to, to get to that space where progress is even a meaningful thing to talk about. Right. Yeah. And so is part of your, you know, a, a vision for a post-growth progressful, if that's a word, society, is that... Uh, you can that call it progressive, space? but then people might misunderstand us. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, purposeful, is, is definitely. It, yeah. Purposeful, certainly. Yeah. Um, would, would that be um, would that be one based on on, on work that sort of elevates work? And uh, well, and, I think. I mean, I think interestingly, the point it, the point is that to some extent we've trashed both labour and and work in capitalism, and and we've done it in very specific ways. First of all, labour is is intensive of human time, and so you know, in chasing productivity and especially the productivity of human time, we've kind of We've, we've left a whole sector of our society, the, the people who labor in society, who really do still labor, the carers, social carers, the, the people who, who build and renovate and the, you know, that sort of part of, of, of the economy that Aaron called labor have been the ones whose uh, livelihoods have been most precarious, whose wages have been lowest, who had the lowest status in society. And, and to some extent kind of left behind by our vision of progress. And so one of the remedies, I think, and, and I think it's a really important remedy because when you think about the lessons of the pandemic, you know, that was the sector of society that mattered the most to us, the people who saved our lives quite literally in hospitals, the people who, you know, made sure that we could live and eat and, and get from day to day. That sector of the population had been left behind by capitalism in a, in a quite precise way by by this sort of chasing and of of labour productivity of the productivity of human time, and there are certain kinds of tasks that don't respond well to that. And, and care, for example, is one of them. So one of my prescriptions is actually that we have to re elevate the idea of care, you know, a part of that sense of of labour into the center of the economy and, and, and put it, give it back its, its place in mm. terms of the importance to us of, of, of the quality of our lives and indeed for our sense of progress. But the second part of it is that capitalism has also 
undermined the concept of work. And this is really fascinating because you'd think, you know, we're all working fantastically productively. We're doing all this stuff. It must be having some impact. But if you think about, if you go back to Aaron's point about what work is for, that sense of creating a durable world for us, durability is inimicable to capitalism. Capitalism does not like things that last. Because if they last, then there's no demand for new things. So you can't turn over and over this new, you know, new markets, new products, new, new services to sell to people over and over again if things are too durable. So, so in fact, you, what you see is that both labor, which has been denigrated under capitalism, and work, which relies on or which is trying to construct durability – and durability is inimical to capitalism, both of those things have, have suffered, I am saying, under our existing economic system. And both of them actually have to be re-elevated to their original purposes. Right, right. That, that makes a lot of sense. And when you think about uh, putting, putting – because the way I see love – sorry, I see work is like putting, putting our love into, into the activity that we're doing. We're putting our heart and soul in it. We're putting our mark on it. And of course, that that activity work in that way. We don't. Most of us in capitalism, not 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 all, but most of us don't have the ability to do that, right? Um, and that yeah, seems to me. I, I think. I mean, that is a really interesting point. And I think, and to, to some extent, I think it can tie together those two things, labor and work, because you know, in an ideal world, that is what both of those things should be. They should be things that we love doing, things that we put ourselves into, which we identify ourselves with. And in the right conditions, I think they are. So actually, it's really fascinating that amongst the most um, fulfilled workers are those who are working in those poorly regarded sectors like caring for other people. Because, because carers do put themselves and their love for the world and for others into their jobs and and that is a, that provides a sense of fulfillment so so there and and as you say the work side of things you know that that the labor of of or the work of creativity is something where you can invest yourself you can invest your vision you can invest your purpose and you can identify with and and i think uh, so so i would i guess i'm agreeing with you i guess i'm saying yes i think that's that's right that those the work itself has kind of lost its sense, lost its way across the board in in the modern economy, and and actually the the um, uh, Schumacher who wrote the Small is Beautiful some thirty years ago, he kind of said almost exactly the same thing. He sort of said, you know, we've been so busy chasing productivity that work is seen as a cost to producers, and it's seen as a you know a sacrifice to people who work itself, and so the meaning and purpose of work has got lost. And 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 bringing that back, you know, makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, and and the way and I I see some some rays of hope in that respect when you look at the the Etsy, you know, ecosystem. You know, this is a world of creators who are engaged in in work as we've just defined it. Right, they're they're putting they're, they're creating something that's going to go potentially last beyond their lifetime. Um, they are creating durable items of art um, that are functional in the world. And even even in the more the mass producer settlements, you see, I mean, to what extent this is, you know, meaningful. You know, I guess we can question, but that there are certain garments, you know, manufacturers now where where 
the individuals who've worked on them will sign their name, you know, in the pair of jeans or, or whatever it might be. And and so you you see some of this coming through, but yeah, the economy yeah. at large is not organised in that way. No, I mean it is challenge. You know, it is a challenging sort. I remember when actually when Prosperity Without Grace, the former book, was, was published, that my father, my father turned around to me, and and he had spent his whole life in the manufacturing sector, really in electronics. I mean, he was doing the research behind the product innovation that would lead to you know the new markets and uh, in in manufacturing and and he kind of said to me you know this, this is really challenging to me I, i've got to rethink everything that i've approached work through before because i've seen work as being this this relationship between uh you know cre- a creative process and material stuff in the world in order to produce material products which you can then sell and that is how, you know, at its best, in a sense, that kind of creative process of manufacturing has progressed. But then if you put the lens of uh, a finite world on top of that, you that's the point at which I think you have to start rethinking, yeah, that's fine. We can have that creative process. We can keep that creativity. We're still necessarily dealing with some materials. We can't do without materials, but we've got to think in terms of, you know, the, the value of the product being much more about the service it has to other human beings rather than simply the mass marketing of a very attractive product that lots of people are going to buy and throw away as fast as possible. You've, you've, you know, you've really got to turn that relationship between materials and the quality of service they provide and our own creativity on its head and prioritize really that sense of service and creativity as the elements of 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 good work yeah yeah i can see that so that there is a it's it's not just about the individual engaged in work um you've got to also apply that that broader lens on you know what are the materials that that individual's using what's the impact on 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 the broader society yeah, yeah i can see i can see that um and something that comes to mind, which I like that you introduce um, in the book, uh, the work of Shalom um, Schwartz. Schwartz, right? And this idea of, you know, we're, we're, we're in this, well, he, he views, I suppose, our human experience across uh, along these two axes, you know, tradition, novelty, and other and self. And what I liked and resonated for me is that the entrepreneur, which right now society obviously, you know, celebrates, um, is very much in that uh, that uh, quadrant of of novelty and self, right? That it's about how can I get rich and how could I produce, you know, new market, new uh, new products for the market, and and for that individual that may be work for them, but you know, for society as a whole, that might cause yeah. us uh, problems. Yeah, just thinking about. I mean, yes, I think that's right. That mostly entrepreneurs would be seen in that in that. Um, selfish innovation, novelty-seeking, selfish segment. But actually, it's quite interesting, you know, the, the emergence of social entrepreneurship, for example, and the ideas of social innovation suggests that actually you could be shifting into that um, selfless side or the social side of, of entrepreneurship within Schwartz's um, sort of map of the human psyche. 
Um, and, and interestingly, actually, a few years ago, a student of mine did a study of, you know, what kind of motivates entrepreneurs. And, you know, you'd think the typical answer to that might be, well, it's money or it's success or it's, you know, personal status, which, of course, are there. There's no denying that, that that's there for all of us in a sense. But there was also something really we, we didn't expect that came through that, which was that the, the, the primary motivations were not about expansion and, and money, but actually about, you know, having some role in society, creating, creating a role in society and, and being and even being of service in society. And we did another we did another study of young, young people and their sort of hopes and aspirations for the future and their fears for the future. Um, and again, we came we came up with this really interesting finding that there were there was lots around you know security. We'll have a good job. We'll have good status. And then there's this undertone, quite a strong undertone of please, you know, whatever else I do, I want to be able to be. I want to have social agency. I want to be able to act in society and be, be a creditable person in society. And I think this is a strong motivation, and it's a social motivation, I would argue. So it falls less in that sort of, you know, selfish, novelty-seeking, hedonist side of Schwartz's diagram. And a little bit more, I think we have to see it, actually, and we have to see it as a primary motivation in human beings to be social, to become social, to be embedded, to participate in society and, and and again for me that 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 sort of evidence and i think it's quite strong evidence provides you know a sense of hope that our that that we could put that back at the center of our vision of progress right and and, and to what extent did you where where were they plotted in terms of traditional versus novelty seeking and how much does a return to tradition play in our um, need, you know, for, or, yeah. or in, in creating sustainable economies. We did. We didn't test that with that particular with that particular um, parameter in that in either of those studies. But it's a really good. Uh, it's a really good idea for a study, which I'm going to go away and now find that find a student somewhere who would <laughs> like to do that because I think it's a really good idea. I don't know is the answer. I mean, typically you're right that that entrepreneur spirit has been seen as. Um, you know, kind of 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 at the frontier of novelty seeking, um, and less bound by kind of tradition and conservation in Schwartz's sense. So, so, and perhaps that's why you know that entrepreneurial spirit does actually have to be balanced by institutions and by and by behaviors and norms that ground us in our tradition that think about you know, the long term in the future, but also the long term going back into our past, connecting us between our past, our present and our future. And I talk about I talk about this a little bit, of course, in the set in the in the bit of the book, the chapter in the book where I'm talking about investment and talking about prudence and this old concept of, of prudence, which which actually and there's a lovely painting that I describe in the the book of 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 an, the allegory of prudence prudence by Titian, and it's a painting of a of a kind of young man looking forwards, an old man looking backwards, and then a sort of man in his middle years. I'm sorry that they're all men, um, but that was I guess was was Titian's kind of mores at the time, sort of looking out of the camera, and what he kind of suggests in the picture, and what the 
concept of prudence suggests to us is that being in the present and acting properly in the present, being prudent in the present, entails looking forwards, of course, in, into, into the results of our actions today, but also looking into the past and understanding where we've come from, where society has come from, where our values are grounded, where our roots are. And that, that, that those two things together, the past and the future, connect in a way that enables us to act in a prudent way in, in the present. In fact, to be truly present in a sense, we have to have those characteristics of looking back as well as looking forwards. And, and that, that would, you know, I don't know whether there's a, I guess that, you know, you could probably apply that to entrepreneurship. You could probably argue that, you know, a successful entrepreneur knows where they've come from as well as where they're going to. And that that might actually provide for a more grounded sense of entrepreneurship. Or it might be that entrepreneurship is just that, you know, relentless novelty seeking, taking risks thing. And we also need the people who are stable and centered and thinking about tradition and, and grounded in care for our kids. And, and that's what keeps society together. We need that stuff as well in society. Well, I wonder if it's about, because you're right, maybe that individual entrepreneur might be highly selfish and novelty seeking, uh, but that might be okay, as, if, as, as you say, if they're constrained in some way. And I can't help thinking, whenever we get into these conversations about sustainability, say, say the Amish or these very traditional uh, communities, right, who seem, at least on the face of it, to be models for sustainable living, right, that, you know, they... They're, but they, they're, they're highly constrained. And you can imagine the entrepreneurial spirits in, you know, individuals in those societies, you know. Being well, repressed. Well, well built, being repressed, but arguably in a healthy way for society, which is an interesting idea. Possibly, Especially for yeah. somebody, for me, who values, you know, that, that freedom. And- yeah, no, I think, I mean, Mary Douglas was a, was a, was a big critic of the idea that of, uh, in fact, early on, she was a critic of the idea of kind of sustainability and ecological sort of activism because she saw it precisely as repressive. And she saw what modern society had done was to actually free ourselves from some of those repressions. And, and she pointed out, and it's, it's really important to point it out, that very closed, traditional, overly conservative communities, conservationist communities, are not nice places to live, particularly if you are that kind of restless entrepreneur who's trying to do something exciting and be creative. You know, you, you're bound by those social mores in the same way, in the same way that they provide a sort of grounding for society. They also clamp down on its creativity if they're applied too oppressively. So it brings us back, I suppose, to one of the other themes in the book, which is this idea of balance. And, you know, the balance between those, those different things, the balance between kind of creative restlessness and, and traditional conservation and safety is important for a healthy society, just as the balance between selfishness and altruism is important in that society. Right. And, and how do we, because of course, you know, traditionally, it was, well, the institutions that would play that role, or would, you know, be, it would be the family, it would be the church. Um, and those, you know, to some extent, those institutions have been, have been challenged, you know, in this era of modern capitalism. Where do you see the sources for that, if you like, healthy restraint? 
you know coming from yeah it is it is um it is it, it is true and there's a wonderful book called the challenge of affluence i think it's called by avner offer where he makes that case that as we've you know as we've developed as society and we've created all these freedoms we've we've lost these devices which he calls commitment devices which allow us to bring back to rein in our individuality and bring back sociality to rein in our kind kind of constant desire for instant gratification and defer some of the gratification into the future so these devices that make us more long term on the one hand and less selfish on the other hand are really important parts of the structure of society and i i think you know i think i don't have an easy answer to your question but if you think of those all of those institutions and of those commitment devices as being eroded then you have to begin to think about what what can bring that back and i think that's for me that's partly a kind of internal journey that every individual actually is probably a whole saner um more fulfilled person if they if they embody that balance rather than push themselves into one or other of the extremes so that and i think that's possible i think that individual process of of becoming more fully human by balancing these tensions within yourself is something that everybody can do but it's also clear of course that when you've got a society that is incentivizing you to be a selfish novelty seeking hedonist in order to you know buy all the goods that we need people to buy because otherwise there's no work for anyone you know when that's happening in society it's very very hard to keep that balance and that's that's another of the sort of central parts of the book in a way that in its pursuit of the idea that more is always better we've created institutions that push people out of that balance so we've got to rein that so that that individual process i think it works it's there it's available for everyone individually to pursue but we've got to think again you know in social terms about the the, the structures that push people into certain push people out of balance and do something about those and i think those are partly you know that's partly about reining in this this relentless power that the market has and and the and the and the government in its role in setting the rules of the market also has to push us out of balance and also perhaps building up those institutions not necessarily in quite the same way that provided that balance in the past so you know institutions that support solidarity in society that support uh, sociality that that draw us together in common endeavors and that may not be you know old style religious churches you know which which we have lost our kind of affinity for in some way but it it must probably be something that replaces the functions that that once had yeah and as you say that i can sort of feel to some extent the fear rising in me of sort of you know the the tendency sometimes that those those institutions can have towards sort of tipping in towards authoritarianism and, and, and sort of heavy-handed repression. And yet I could absolutely see as we talk the need for some level of, of repression of that individual impulse. It's a, you know, it's, it's, another, an, I it's, think, it's a tension I mean, there. You talk about it, Richard, as repression, but what if we talk about it as integration instead, as solidarity? Because I think that's, you know, I, I talk about this film that, that I, in the book called The Witness, by, which is a Peter Weir film, Australian director. 
And he has, and he goes into the Amish community with that film, actually. He has Harrison Ford go in there as the wounded police officer who's just rescued the young boy that, who's the witness in the film. And they hole up in this Amish community. And, and there's a scene in that film where he has that, where he definitely shows the repression that exists in the Amish community. You know, he, he doesn't shy away from that. But then he also has this scene, which is the barn raising scene, where the whole community comes together once a year to put up this, you know, know, to renovate its structures, to do its work together. And there's this scene where where they're just raising this barn, um, building a barn out of wood, and everybody is playing a role in that process. Everybody is involved in that. Every generation is involved in some task, whether it's the banging of the wood together or the cutting or the lifting or just not just, but or feeding, you know, doing the labor of feeding the people who are doing the the work of of creating the barn. And and it's it's really it's a very visual analogy for what Aaron was talking about, but it also brings out this sociality that work can provide in the sense that when we're engaged in a common task together, um, we're not repressed, and yet we're not entirely individualistic either. And, and, and I think that kind of, you know, working together is, in a way, it's the place, it's the place where that kind of fear of repression can, can be shifted a little bit, even as we move away from the thoroughly sort of individualistic idea of, of personal uh, creativity and personal task and um you know, I, how does that feel in your sense? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, a bomb. No, it's uh, yeah. No, but I like that framing, right? That that just seems like at least to my sensibility. I mean, obviously, I, is a is a metaphor. We're we're talking. You know, it's a visual metaphor yeah, in, yeah. in Weir's film for that that common spirit and the best of that common spirit yeah, coming together it, in a common task. But there are other common tasks, for example, that you know equally. Equally important, yeah. And that, in, well, and, and I like that term integration. So there's the integration of the individual with with the group, and you know, engaged in a particular activity as you just described. But also, the story I love is you know of uh, you know, this lady from Kenya, um, Wangari Wangari Matsai. Yeah. yeah, and the and the the Mugumu tree. But that seemed to be, and I'll let you tell a story. But that seems to be like an integration almost between the in, with between the individual and the and the myths of the culture. Yeah, I mean, this is very interesting. It's also an integration, of course, between people and planet. So the Maguma tree is this kind of fig tree that grows in the highlands of Kenya. And, and you know, when she was a child, Wangari Matai, who, who became the founder of the Greenbelt Movement, which planted trees all over Africa and eventually all over the world, um, you know, learned from her mother that there, when she was collecting wood, she shouldn't collect the wood from this Maguma tree. And uh, and and she asks her mother why, because, you know, the Maguma tree provides life and it was associated with the, you know, the deity of the local deity in the in the tribal uh, tongue and and therefore should not be touched. And then, you know, Wangari, the guy accepts all this. She goes out and she you know collects water from the stream and she collects wood, but not from where the Maguma trees are planted. And then she goes out into the world and she kind of learns about ecology. She's actually one of the what's called the the Kennedy airlift of the Kenyan um, teenagers who were basically taken from Kenya and educated in the U.S. And then she comes back to Kenya. She goes back to her local um, 
uh, village and she sees all the Maguma trees have gone and the streams have dried up and there's no more vegetation there. And it's a kind of barren place because they cut it all down to, to uh, plant tea plantations, which has basically ruined the ecology. And, and the, point, the point about it is that that simple myth that her mother had encoded her in a kid was a protection um, against the value that the Maguma tree represented in ecological terms. It, it, it has these deep roots. It goes down through the rock, so it gets down to the groundwater. The groundwater then can spring up through these springs that come up into the earth, and that water then makes the vegetation lush around the, where the Maguma trees are planted. It has an ecological function that is of huge value to human beings and to the communities who lived there. And all of that just got wiped out, got trashed by, by essentially by capitalism coming in and planting tea because that was a lucrative product that provided export payments that would bring Kenya supposedly out of poverty and into the, into the, the modern world. If that, if we believe the best of that myth and it went wrong because it neglected that simple message that was coded into a local myth that we have, we, we break the connection between ourselves and the earth at our peril. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the accumulated wisdom of, of that community as held in the myths. And we, yeah, we, we don't, yeah, that's what it seems to be that we've eroded in this modern era of capitalism is this, the, the accumulated, you know, wisdom, you know, of our cultures. It, it, all of it's like the questions we ask is, are we don't start on a capitalistic project with the question of how do we honor our culture? We start with how much money can we make for our shares? Yeah. It, it's, it's just, it's just sort of gone from the, from the psyche, isn't it? And, it? and it's interesting to speculate. I mean, again, you know, it's about, it's about asking ourselves and almost feeling our way through. What would it be like if we put some of that back? It goes back right back to that idea that tradition. You know, tradition provided for the conservation and that myth supported the Megumi trees, which provided for a lush landscape in which people could live. When, when you lose that route, when you cut it off, then you lose the wisdom that's associated with it. And so kind of going back and finding the places where actually we, we need to reinstate not necessarily the same myth. You don't have to believe that the fig tree represents a deity in our society. But actually, now that we have a, a wider knowledge, actually, of the scientific knowledge of what that relationship is, how we can use that to, to, to anchor ourselves into a better relationship to the planet. Um, you know, I think that's, a, again, a fantastically creative task to engage in. Yeah, and I think that's right. And, but I think what's interesting to me is even if I reflect on this story, I, I sort of scan my own memory and thoughts for what similar myths were, was I exposed to, you know, as a kid. And I, I literally can't think of any. And I think mm. that's, you know, that's illustrative of, of where we're at. Yeah. Yeah, we're always kind of rushing forwards, looking forwards, innovating constantly and thinking about this restless future. And I mean, you know, when you think about what we're, you know, mind your generation or my generation, but our kids' generation, um, you know, the, the, that sense, there is a sense, I think, of a kind of, a sort of great acceleration um, that's being driven forward by that, and therefore a real need, I think, to find the places where we can anchor ourselves in a in a bit of at least reflection on the meaning and the the importance of those traditions. Right. Yeah, and reflection comes through, you know, throughout out this book as something that's you know, important. Um, 
and, and what's interesting about the book, I suppose, is you know you're 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 an economist, and <laughs> this this has a very poetic feel, very reflective feel. You know, you lose a lot, use a lot of poetry in the book. Um, and is that part of this this solution? Is is sort of spending time in in reflection, in in poetry? You know, it's a it's yeah yeah. Talk a little bit about yeah. You know, that. I, think- I suppose it's a new attitude in some ways. I, I think it is. I think it is. It's, in some ways, it's a very personal book, Post Growth, because uh, it was about, partly at least, about bringing two two halves of myself together. You know, this kind of academic economist side, which had been, you know, at the heart of government policy, at the heart of problems of sustainability, teaching my kids, professing as professors are supposed to do about you know important theories and backing them up with scientific evidence and i'm not dissing that process of course it's really important but it is only a part of how we see the world and relate to it and and actually you know just as it happens i before i was a, a an economist i was a a playwright um I, I wrote radio plays for the bbc and continued to do it while i was an economist for a while um and 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 that's a very very different process and you know one of the things for example that you can do when you're a playwright which you can't do if you're a professor is that you can have characters who speak with completely different voices people who don't see the world as you as a professor see the world people who argue against your own positions you know when i'm professing i have to defend my argument and publish papers to defend my argument and get peer reviewers to critique it and then defend against their critiques. And it's all a very, it's a very intellectual left brain activity. And yet we're not fundamentally just left brain creatures. We are as much or more right brain creatures. And that's where our inspiration comes from. It's where our creativity comes from. It's where our vision for the future comes from. And, and so what I had done, what, you know, my personal history is I'd held those two things separately. I'd held ecological economics here you know in my day job and i'd found my sanity in being able to write plays for the bbc on the other hand and and i'd kind of held them apart from each other and 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 that's why post growth is kind of so personal in a sense because i made a sort of conscious decision actually to bring them to see what would happen if i brought them together again and and what happened was more of a sense of storytelling, the, the telling of the stories of the individuals that, that we've talked about, Hannah Arendt and Wangari Matai and Robert Kennedy and John um, John Stuart Mill and, and various others who populate the book in order to carry humanity, to bring humanity into economics in a very tangible way for people to understand but also to bring that sense of the creative, that sense of the poetic, to move away from the stringent prison of kind of mathematical formulae and policy predictions and to argue, and I think this is actually is where economics comes from, that the, the, the way that we organise the economy, the way that we organise society is a moral issue and an emotional issue as much as it is a scientific and rational issue and and to neglect that is is to is to is to make economics actually a less powerful thing um and and to bring it back is to make economics into a richer fuller description 
of how we can approach the world. And that, that was very much, you know, that's very much a part of what I wanted to do in the book. And at the same time, hopefully, to use those as tools to make economics and economic ideas accessible to more people. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. And, and part of me, as you, as you say that, thinks, well, hang on, why don't we leave the economics, economists doing economics? And actually, the way to solve that is to bring more ethicists and moralists and, you know, philosophers in, into the public. But, discourse and integrate them in that way but in some ways that's just more of the same right it's 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 this um you know siloed thinking right that's more of right brain and left brain independently but actually perhaps perhaps the idea here is to bring humanity you know into economics and and for that matter any of these other sort of scientific um realms uh, and, yeah yeah I mean, I think, again, it's like it's like the thing we were talking about with, you know, the individual and social. You could do both things. Obviously, you could. I think if you can, if you balance your governance, for example, with that sense of the ethical and the moral and the social, then it's perhaps it's safe enough to leave the things slightly separate from each other. Um, and that you do have economists who are looking at the budget and do understand, you know, macroeconometric forecasting or whatever is probably still something you might want somewhere in your process. Um, but, but I also, you know, I, I kind of think that economics itself would still benefit from remembering its origins as a moral philosophy. And, and, yeah. and, that, and, and if you, as soon as you forget that, as soon as you start seeing economics actually as a kind of standalone, um, self-justifying, uh, hard science of behavior and the future, that's the point where all the dangers come from because you forget that behind all of the assumptions in the economic models lie moral positions which are not defined, not open for inspection, and therefore not open to question. And that's dangerous. That, that's when it becomes dangerous. That's when it becomes possible for you to trump all of your moral concerns by whether or not the decision that you make in government will promote growth or not. And that's, that's where danger lies. That's such a profound point, right, that we, we hide that moral position and we don't inspect it. Yeah, that, that's so true. We, 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 we have a conversation about economic growth without any conversation about the morality embedded in, the, in, you know, in that position. Um, yeah, it allows us to make ridiculous decisions. You know, we'll, we'll go for, uh, we'll, we'll install a nuclear power station because it'll be good for nuclear growth. We'll dump the waste in a place which is in a thousand years or even a hundred years is going to be dangerous because we're focusing on growth. We're going to allow the licensing of casinos all across our country because it will promote growth. You know, you can you, you take these moral decisions in a hidden way because you're arguing in favour of something in which they are supposed not to matter, and yet they they are integral to our lives. Those moral aspects and they change the decisions that you make on an apparently objective basis in promotion of economic growth. Actually, has moral consequences which go deep into our society. You know, you you you, you allow companies, modern tech companies to create their activities in tax havens because that will promote growth. And the kinds of things that you allow them to do with the data that they collect through those tech uh, innovations um, is unregulated and undermining even our social and political stability as we speak. And also all of that stuff, data analytica, all of that 
kind of stuff and and the exposure of our kids to technologies whose influences and whose implications we still don't really understand is all predicated on the defense of economic growth and and yeah. that's a dangerous place to be yeah but but it, and you're right that we don't understand these things but what's interesting is we we allow these activities to continue without even the moral inquiry that might through, you know, an inspection of the wisdom, you know, that, that sits behind some of these decisions might, might actually give us a prediction of, well, maybe this is a good idea or a bad idea, but we don't even have that conversation sort of, uh, ahead it's of time. There. Right? It's no, we don't. I mean, we've kind of, exactly. I think ahead of time is exactly where we don't have it. And then a little bit later, there's a kind of catch up, you know, there's a little bit of social backlash, but that conversation is always relegated to, you know the chattering classes and the and the broadsheets and and what's happening at the seat of government and is is actually a, a conversations which are are systematically neglecting that moral aspect and I you know I think that's that's the part that's particularly wrong and particularly dangerous. Yeah, yeah, that, I think that's such an yeah such an important important point. Um, so Tim, we don't. I know we don't have too much time left with you. I just wonder for our, you know, for the individual listeners out here, you know, what's your, what's your message for for individuals in terms of how they lead their life? You know, what what are some of the the things that you suggest uh, for people um, who themselves want to bring about a more prosperous, yeah. sustainable future? Yeah. Um, I mean, we 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 touched on it a little bit before this question of you know how much the individual can do, and I think it is mm-hmm. always possible for the individual to. To work and to and to inform themselves and to and to pursue their lives with this concept of balance at its heart and and this balance between you know our selfish motivations our social motivations balance between thinking about innovation and thinking about tradition um, and 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 the balance also between labour and work in our lives you know we tend to think that we should we should be at that higher ending part higher earning part of the of the workforce which is essentially drawing rents extracting rents from all the other parts of the economy in order to produce not just wealth but social status but actually those bits of of the workforce that are about labor Hannah Arendt's labor you know the grounding ourselves in the day-to-day rejuvenation and protection and maintenance and nurturing of human life Actually, it's a loss at the individual level to to simply, you know, continually push yourself or, or think of yourself as being this hyper creative, novelty seeking, entrepreneurial person, and neglecting those those tasks which we sort of denigrate to parts of society that then become undervalued. So I think you know at the individual level, I, this balance between these different elements, I think, is is an important guiding principle. But there's one. One other element which I want to touch on, which I talk about in the book, which is this suggestion that there are um, states of being, of being human, really, which are inherently fulfilling, um, exceedingly creative, and in and of themselves tend to dissolve the boundary between self and other and between self and task, and between self and planet, and this is this this psychological state of flow, which I which I develop as a kind of theme through the book, because you know, and and this and this draws on our own research actually. And what the research shows is that 
you know, when you when you experience this state of flow, and most popularly it's thought of as being, you know, what sports people experience when they're really functioning at a high level. They're in a state of flow, and that's the kind of linguistics of it. Then they're, they're somehow, you know, they're just in the zone. And that sense of being in the zone, it seems to me, um, it, it, you know, is something that's accessible to everyone. It's not... Uh, reliant on you having uh, a, a huge position in society. It's not reliant on having a huge amount of, of physical or material or economic resources. It's it's a state of mind that actually is very democratizing and could provide a sense of vision of what prosperity is and what progress could mean that has gone missing, I think. And 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 the research that we've done, I mean, what research that we've done is fascinating because it sort of it does a couple of things. It sort of says that when you, when you are someone who's more, more, more liable to to um, experience this sense of flow, um, you are likely also to be a less materialistic person. And then there's another bit of research, which was a suggestion made by a psychologist called Mihaly Shishent Mihaly, who who has done a lot of work around this concept of flow, which sort of says that you know these. Flow-based activities are less material intensive, less environmentally damaging in their nature, because what they call on us to do is to, is to focus our attention around a particular challenge and to develop our skill in meeting that challenge. And that balance, again, balance between skill and challenge is where this experience of flow comes from. So that, that's why, for example, sports people do experience it a lot, because playing sports at a high level is very challenging and demands a lot of skill. So when you're in the zone, these things come together and that skill and balance are skill and challenge are balanced with each other. And you and you and out of this emerges this sense of 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 human uh, experience, which is highly, uh, highly conducive to well-being, you know, good measures which show that people who experience flow are also happier on psychometric measures of their well-being less materialistic less use of material activity and and also you know this sense of dissolving the boundaries between self and other of bringing bringing our experiences into a place which allows us to reach that sense of solidarity to become less materialistic to um, be less environmentally damaging potentially as well and 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 that for me you know is a project that that's like a project to create a different vision of what humans can be a different sense of the the journey that we're on a different vision for for prosperity and for progress itself and and one in which everybody can be engaged you know we can teach our kids skill to manage challenge in all sorts of different uh, arenas. And, and we can do that systematically through our lives. At any stage in our life, we can take up that decision. We can make that decision. And that decision empowers us to live fuller, more meaningful, and more sustainable lives. Wow. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's really that's a that's a very empowering message. As you say, democratizing anybody could ask themselves that question: How could I find flow to a greater degree in my life? You know, whatever my skill level, whatever my age, mobility, immobility, economic resources. Right? That's yeah, that's available. Um, 
Yeah, beautiful. And, and it's, <laughs> it's such a, I, I think, you know, what I love about it is it's so much richer a concept of what it means to do well or what it means to prosper than anything that capitalism has offered us. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, from, and, and purely from the sort of ecologic, ecological sustainability point, this isn't because uh, so often the message from sort of that, that camp is, you know, don't do this, deprive yourself of this. But what you're talking about here is something, you know, entirely yeah, positive. Absolutely. The, this post-growth world is a richer, more fulfilling, more meaningful, more purposeful world. And, and that's something to hold on to. That's something to fight for. Yeah. Excellent. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. I can, that's, that was yeah, wonderful conversation. Been a pleasure. Um, uh, really enjoyed that. Uh, so we'll, we'll, put, we'll put a link to the book, Post Growth Life After Capitalism, with a one. My, my, kid, my kids love this sofa, by the way. They're four and a half years old, and the book's been lying around the house. That's there, so really intrigued. good to know. I'm really pleased. I need to know why they, what they like about it so much. There was quite a lot of discussion, as you can imagine, about the picture on the cover, uh, but, but I like it too. Yeah, wonderful so far. And, and I suppose it's part of the point here. That that that's um but it looks like people have worked on that so far, not laboured on it. And it looks like it's gonna last. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Okay, wonderful. All right. Well, thanks again, uh Tim. So we'll yeah, we'll put the link to the book. Um and yeah, I guess the other place for people that might they might want to check it out is your um your research center. Is there anywhere else else you might send people? Uh, yeah, that, that research centre has, has a lot of resources on it. So that's www.cusp.ac.uk. And then there's also some resources which talk about my ecological economics work and also my playwriting on timjackson.org.uk. Um, and uh, yeah, th- thank you for having me on the show. No, thank you so much. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.